You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Over the past couple of weeks, I'd asked you guys what kind of content you'd like to see besides the usual dart frog content, which is kind of what I've been putting out because it's kind of what's been within my, within my comfort zone the most. So I, uh, I reached out to a couple of people, and tonight I have uh, Josh Coppola, who's going to be coming to us from the UK, and he has some experiences with newts and salamanders. So I think it'll be nice to kind of go off in a different direction and feature some other amphibians that are obviously not dark frogs and obviously not frogs. So uh, we're kind of going international here. Uh, Josh is actually going to be my second guest from out of country. He's going to be coming to us from the UK. So if the audio isn't too great, just kind of be patient and uh, we'll see. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of investing in some new technology and whatnot here. But uh, unfortunately, we can only really rely on uh, on the Wi-Fi signal, which has been bad. I actually ended up having to change my router out last week. I ended up having to get a new phone. So I kind of just went like through the ringer and uh, I finally caught up. So enough about that. Why don't we get into it? So Josh, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's absolutely my pleasure. So um, Josh, you're going to kind of enlighten us in terms of your experiences with, with different species of newts and salamanders. But before we get into that, why don't you start at the beginning and tell us your story? What was it like growing up and what drew you towards animals and ultimately to newts specifically? Um, yes, of course. So I've pretty much been interested in animals uh, my entire life. And uh, a common gift for me was always those, uh, it's, you know, like those little books that which have essentially the animals in it. And when I was little, I was was interested in um, picking up uh, top doors of toads and frogs and watching them metamorphosize and releasing them back to the nature until one day I found a newt. And I guess that's where it started. Like, I found my very first one. I knew that they existed, but I had no idea what they looked like. And that kind of pushed me to research them more. And then uh, they became my favorite animal to have and to study. Which species are you currently keeping uh, as of now? Uh, I have a few of them. So um, I don't really specialize in a single like uh, type of genus of newt. So I have some, uh, I have my favorite, which are the Italian newt. It's a small newt endemic of southern Italy. And they were the very first newt I've ever seen in my life. So when I had the chance, I had to uh, pick up a pair of them again. And then I have a few others. So I have some uh, salamandra, so some fire salamanders, some uh, inobius from Japan. I have some marble salamanders from the US, actually. Oh, really? My favorite for a while now. And I have mm-hmm. some uh, uh, crocodile newts from Vietnam as well. Now, what, what what sort of husbandry methods are you using? Because I, I ironically, uh, despite my immersion into the dart frog world salamanders uh, newts specifically were my first uh, were my first venture into amphibians and this was going back a, a long time we had uh, a lot of the local stores had uh, and you know what my, i apologize my, my i've been trying to be really religious about using scientific names but I, I am going to totally go common name on this one but we had uh, uh, eastern newts 
Western newts. We had a few different species of firebelly newts, and they were like ubiquitous. They were at every pet store. And they were some of the first species that I kept when I was younger. But after a while, you stopped seeing them for a number of reasons. But what, like, what husbandry methods have you had success with? Like, how would you, like, how would you set up for uh, for any one of those species? Um. So the it's a bit varied. Like when it comes to news, like there is some general guidelines you can follow, but really every species has its own requirements. Uh, but generally speaking, for example, for uh, the aquatic, uh, for the aquatic news, I always had the, like uh, the biggest success in uh, very simple aquariums with like maybe just some sponge fit, uh, air sponge filter, and plant a lot of plants, like as many plants as you can, and always bare bottom, because I always found that sand, while it's more aesthetically pleasing, and it also has like quite advantages uh, for roots of plants. It's always a mess. It's so much harder to clean, and you always have the risk of the new ingesting it by, uh, by mistake. So I always find that if you want to keep aquatic news, it's always best to just go very simple and back to the minimum necessary, and they're going to be happy with it. Yeah, this, the setups that, that we used at the time, I mean, again, this is going back into the late 80s, but there was actually a almost like a kit that they would sell at the local stores, which was this pathetic looking like half of a land area. And you'd fill the 10 gallon tank up about halfway with water. And and it's just, it's amazing how different the husbandry specifics have gotten, especially since people have tailored their approaches more towards specific species as opposed to just newts in general. Now, I mean, here in the USA, we... As of about 2016, there was some very, very sweeping legislation. Um, I know in Europe, you guys have some different regulations, but here in the United States, the regulations were essentially amended that basically banned the importation and interstate commerce of about 200 species of salamanders due to uh, uh, BSAL, which is the chytrid fungus that affects salamanders. So our, uh, our ability to get salamanders now is significantly reduced as compared to what was before. I mean, I remember going to expos about 10, 15 years ago and being able to get fire salamanders pretty regularly and quite a few other species, uh, species of newts and whatnot. So now we're, to my knowledge, limited to pretty much, um, you know, captive bred species. But um, I'm assuming you guys don't have that situation in Europe. I mean, what... How many species are accessible to the average person, like in the UK or on the continent? And I mean, do you guys have any restrictions like we have over here in the US? So uh, we have restrictions, and I think they're actually uh, probably tougher than the one that you just described. So the, you know, growing up, like I had the same situation where you would go to a pet shop, and they would always have the Chinese fire belly. They would have all these like uh, animals from um, Asia. But more or less at the same time, I think, I can remember before 2016 or 2017, they produced a legislation where essentially they blocked all the families of um, of, of newts and salamanders, which means that they didn't list any species. They just went, all, 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 each one of them, everyone is blocked. And so there has been no imports uh, inside the European Union since 2017. 
And then there is this, um, technically there is a way to have legal inputs, uh, but the, um, what you have to do to in order to do them is so expensive and that is just not possible. So essentially nothing uh, has come through inside the European Union. And on top of that, also like ex, uh, com any commercial exchange between the different member states also has been blocked because again, in order to bring uh, news from one uh, country to the other, you have to go through a period of quarantine, you have to test a certain number of the animals, which I'm sure you can understand, uh, makes commercially uh, new, um, commercially like pointless. It just seems like there is no way anybody's gonna make money after uh, it. So yeah, we have not seen a news in a shop for the last three, four years now. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I, like I said, I'm not really that immersed into the salamander world. I mean, I know every um, every niche in the amphibian community kind of has their own, you know, well, their own niche. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a niche in the first place. But it's interesting to see that those types of regulations have kind of gone global. And I know that, I mean, here, here in North America and into Central America, we got hit with um with bd which was the i mean just the frog um this this the species of chytrid that has a very very profound effect on frogs it started here in the 70s and then sort of made its way down uh, i believe the, the last i was able to figure out i think it started in somewhere in central america maybe in mexico and then it kind of gradually weighed it's made down into central america so we got sort of hit very hard with that frog end of it here but we have an extremely high diversity of salamanders especially in the southeast united states so i think that the regulations were really designed to really to preserve them specifically because i mean up until recently i wasn't aware that we have something like over 150 different species of salamanders north of mexico and that diversity and that biomass is just so diverse and and immense that if we were to take a hit from you know a a foreign pathogen, I mean I know that it's doing a you know the uh, BSAL, the salamander well variant whatever you want to call it of chytrid is doing a tremendous amount of damage in Europe. So I think this was just sort of like everyone's ways of just saying, well, let's just shut the doors and and put a lid on this before it gets out of control the way it did with frogs in Central America. Now, I mean, do you guys ever having problems with like invasives? I mean, we do have some invasive species here, but they're not necessarily salamanders to my knowledge. Uh, I've heard anecdotal reports of axolotls being reduced, uh, being released into certain places, but um, I've also heard of uh, some of the xenopus uh, or commonly known as clawed frog species kind of becoming uh, invasive in certain areas like California, whatnot. Do you guys have a problem with, um, with like non-natives being released and potentially causing harm to the environment? Is that kind of why that you guys started this protocol or is it kind of just because everybody sort of went along with it? Um, so one of the main theories that suggests why BTAL arrived in Europe was through the Petrate. Because, um, so BTAL, uh, the same as BD, actually, they are both like chytrid originating from uh, from Asia. So, so the main hypothesis is that um, 
Bisal hitchhiked on top of the different scenarios, the parameter treatment, and that's how I got to Europe. And um, because, like, when you look at lots of the Asian species, they actually tolerate Bisal, so they, they can be carriers, while the European species, as well as the American species, uh, they cannot tolerate it and die. And the, what's happening with Bisal in uh, Central uh, in Europe is actually quite bad. I was um, I was essentially looking, uh, listening to a, a, charm, a presentation of Bisal, what it's done to, uh, for example, some forests in the Netherlands is absolutely terrifying. You had forests where they had like a very big population of fire salamanders, and they've declined by 99.9%. So they essentially wiped out every single salamander from entire areas. And uh, the issue with Bisal is once it gets there, it's there to stay. So it's not one of those uh, type of um, infections where if there is nothing to attack, it dies out. The spores of the fungus just stays in the environment, so you cannot even reintroduce salamanders anymore. And that's, I think like that's why the reaction in Europe has been so strongly against it. And um, I can actually put you a case uh, just to explain again how hard it is to remove from the environment. It has been done in uh, Spain. So someone uh, decided to introduce some omatotriton uh, uh, vitatus in, uh, in Spain, in uh, this like small pond in Catalonia. And in order to protect the native population of uh, newts, they had to essentially drain the pond, chemically disinfect everything, and essentially burned a part of the forest down and keep killing every single amphibian they found just to try to eradicate the infection, which is still not 100% eradicated. So it, luckily, from all the papers that I've seen, you have uh, B-Sal has not reached North America, and it's not present in either white population, not even in, uh, among the among the hobbies. But as you mentioned, like if it gets out there, um, especially in the southeast with such a diversity of uh, animals, there is a serious risk that you're going to see entire species completely being wiped out. Yeah, it's it's a scary it's a scary situation and. That's interesting, you know, what you told me about that just essentially destroying a whole area to try and eliminate it from the environment. I mean, I've uh, <clears throat> I've looked over some studies and there's even some evidence that it might even be transmitted by aquatic, like uh, waterfowl, meaning aquatic birds might be able to, um, you know, hang out in one body of water, the um, oh, for the life of me, I can't. Remember. I just, I just took a class in it too. Um, but anyway, um, almost like like uh, zoo, uh, zoo, was it zoospores will adhere to the um, the bird's feet. It'll leave from one pond and it'll go, say, maybe a mile away, and it'll land in another pond and potentially cross contaminate the two. So it's 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 scary. I mean, the idea of this pathogen doing more damage you know, worldwide is uh it's it's intense and i know that uh, i mean i for one I, you know I, I regret not being able to well i shouldn't say regret but um i wish i still saw these things in the hobby but not at the expense of wiping out so many native species so i mean have you do, have you ever run into wild 
fire salamanders where you are? Or, I mean, is it something that you don't see as much anymore? I mean, what's your experience been with some of the native uh, chordates? Um, so the, the experience have been, for me, it's been different. So as um, we mentioned at the beginning of the talk, I'm from southern Italy. And Italy is actually, we are lucky as we have, 24, 25 species of mutant salamanders, and I think we are the country with the most species in Europe. But when I was back home, I only saw the Italian newt, which is the um, the smallest newt you can find in um, in Europe. So I never actually, seen, even though they were present in my region, it's one of those things that if you don't know where to look for them, you're not really going to find them. And now I live in the UK, which only has three species of newts, so quite limited. We are so close to we are so close to France, but at the same time, salamanders, uh, five salamanders, never made it across the channel. We do have a fourth species of newt, actually, which is the alpine newt, which is a species that got uh, introduced. So it's uh, an alien species, and there is quite a few population at the moment in the United Kingdom. That's interesting. I mean, to your knowledge, have they been problematic? Um, it's a bit hard to say. Uh, the issue with alpine newts is that, um, yeah, when you look at on, on the continent, they already uh, share the habitat with the uh, smooth newt, the crested newts. So it's one of the species that, in theory, it should not compete because... It's not like a completely new um, species from outside environment. They already kind of live, I guess, with each other, just not in the UK. Um, the, so there is, there is some talk about the potential efforts on the palmate newts, but it's one of those things where there has not been enough research to, to actually quantify if they pose an issue or not. But because they are an alien species, every time they are found, uh, the protocol is usually they need to be eliminated because it's one of the things that it's an alien species. So if you pick it up, then it becomes illegal to release back in. So it's one of the big gray area. But the main concern so far has been the fact that they could be potentially uh, carriers of BD and Bison. So, but so far, not find be sun in the wild in the UK, so crossing finger that's not going to happen. We have some similar restrictions here in terms of not in non-native and invasive species in uh, in <clears throat> excuse me in Florida right now. It, it's a, a, a hotbed, and Florida we have a problem with green iguanas, and green iguanas one of the first species that came into the pet trade in the seventies and the eighties, and they made on the whole a poor choice. And for a number of reasons, and it's not it's not just people releasing them, there's other reasons as well, but they established a population in, in parts of Florida. And the last time I heard a directive was they, they generally, um, they, they were kind of encouraged to be uh, dispatched humanely upon contact. So it's, it's a very similar situation like what you guys have over there with the uh, alpine newts. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult for some people. I know it raises some ethical issues and it's open for some debate but um yeah it's you generally don't want to have a non-native invasive species especially one that's a vector for disease uh if you can avoid it so you know use your discretion now 
tell us, I mean, you have a website, salamanderland.com, that you, I'm assuming you created it with a couple of other guys. What led you to create that website? Because there's a lot of information on there. How did that start? So, um, at the very beginning, it was more effective. Uh, I wanted to create a website to just learn how to do it. And uh, something I didn't mention, like, my work is on digital marketing. So it was something that I was interested in. I just wanted to understand more how it works. And when I was thinking of what to write the website about, the only thing I could really think about was my own hobby. So I decided to create a website. And one of the main purposes of this website was to actually uh, create a website that had as much information as possible about how to keep uh, news in Salamander, especially in Italian. So um, if I don't know if you know this, but the website is bilingual, so we have every article is both in English and Italian. And my focus on the Italian part is because growing up, and even at the moment, there is nothing talking about how to keep news in Salamander in Italian. So when I was little and I was trying to learn about news, so learn how to keep them, even just learn about what they are essentially, I had to rely on English websites. So that kind of, in a way, it helped me learning English because I had to be able to read English in order to learn how to keep news for Salamanders. But not everybody uh, can do that and not everybody speaks English. So one of the main focus of the website is to create a very up-to-date, kind of scientifically written um, instructions and care sheets on how to effectively keep the newts and breed them. So with a lot of emphasis on um, the breeding captivity and make it available uh, easily accessible to Italians so they can also learn. And because I'm fairly good with English, I decided to make it bilingual so that anything that we find that we write, because me and my friends are all Italian, can also be access, uh, accessible to anybody else that could find it interesting. That's pretty wild that there's no literature written in Italian. I, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess, I mean, he, here in the United States, we sort of not only assume everyone speaks English, but we kind of expect everybody to. Uh, I mean, the, the part of the country I'm in is, is extremely diverse. I mean, we've got people from, you've got, where I live, you've got every accent in the world, but um, I mean, is there, why do you think that there's no literature that was written in Italian? Um, I think it's just a matter that uh, Newton Salamander are such a small niche as a hobby. Like you may think that dark frogs are a small niche when it comes to terroristic in general, but newts are a much, much smaller niche and I think the only other smaller group of people are the ones keeping um, Sicilians. So at the end of the day, there is not many people that were keeping these animals. So there was not that much push for translating this material in Italian. And uh, all the information you find online is either going to be all in English or there's going to be quite a lot of information in German because they, also, they are much, much bigger on uh, keeping reptiles and amphibians than uh, Italy. But then again, there was nothing in Italian. So from as far as I know, my website, I probably some cache written in forums is the only information that you can find online in Italian on how to keep new to answer Interesting, interesting. 
Well, I mean, of the species of newts that you currently keep, I, I know that earlier you said that there's a lot of specifics that goes into husbandry and more and more as I, you know, kind of make my lifelong journey or whatever you want to call it, I'm finding that you really can't apply a one-size-fits-all care aspect to really anything. I mean, going back a long time, that was sort of the conventional wisdom was that if you could take care of one species of frog, you could take care of any species and you could maintain them under the same uh, under the same captive conditions. But now that's obviously not true. So, I mean, of, of the newts that you, that you keep, I mean, is there a particular species that you'd like to kind of share a little bit more about specifically in terms of like why you like to work with it and what makes it unique compared to other species? Um, yeah, so I can actually go with a couple, which I think you're going to be, uh, as you say, there is like not a one-size-fits-all, but there are some sort of clusters that you can create on um, regarding the nuisance salamanders. So you have your completely terrestrial species, your fully aquatic and one that kind of can go both ways. But then in, inside these three classes, there are like subcategories. Uh, so one species that's uh, so my first new ever, which is the Italian new, is one of those aquatic species. So it's, um, it's a very small new. It's only, it's endemic in, from southern Italy, so you can only find it there. It is very small. And I think the biggest female are a bit less than three inches long, and that's counting the tail. So it's a very small newt, but and it's like a pond-dwelling newt, which means that it does not want uh, fast-flowing water. So it's an aquarium with like a very small like sponge fitters is all it needs. It does not really go on land. Like every uh, at the moment in the aquarium, there are a couple of pieces of bark. But the only time I've seen them going on bark is um, when they're sick or it's too hot or there's something uh, not working with the aquarium. So essentially, this is practical. In a way, it's like the most traditional way of keeping newts because lots of these species that were kept in the hobby, they are from this type of environment where you have still water, it's not a pond type of environment. There are others, though, that require more fast-flowing water, which I do not have among my species, but have some one that is a bit different, which you see in... Uh, it's called Pilototriton ziegleri, which is uh, Ziegler's crocodile newt. So it's um, one of the crocodile newts endemic from uh, uh, northern Vietnam. And one interesting thing of this this group is um, a genus of mutant salamanders where in the last few years more and more species have been discovered. And it's a quite interesting genus for the fact that you have species that are very aquatic, like the Pilototriton um, vericosus, which is something that, that can be kept like uh, aquatic the entire uh, all year round. Or you have species like mine, which are completely terrestrial. And they even lay eggs on land, so their eggs do not actually go in water. So this, um, they're quite particular, so they live uh, competing on land. So at the moment, I'm keeping it in a very, um, I would say, like, sterile uh, setup. 
So simply like a kitchen towel, a substrate, some hide, some moss, and some box uh, for them to walk around. And the reason why I'm doing that is because when it comes to terrestrial salamanders, uh, unless they need uh, to borrow, like for example, your marble salamanders in the uh, general most salamanders UK in, uh, uh, in the United States, lots of terrestrial salamanders can be kept in a bit more uh, clean, like hygienic um, environments, which are not the best to look at, but at the same time, they are much easier to clean. And one of the big issues with terrestrial salamanders is the part that the soil tends to soil, so, sorry, tends to get dirty and accumulates a lot of nitrates, and then you start to have issues with your animals that either they get sick or they get infection. Because people don't realize that if you want to keep them in a naturalistic type of terrarium, you also need to completely change the substrate uh, every so often, like at least twice a year. And um, yeah, so it's like it's a completely two different type of caring uh, system. One is like they live in an aquarium, it's essentially imitating a pond, while the other is very sterile type of environment, but terrestrial and quite different. That's why I was mentioning before that there is not really a one-size-fits-all because there is quite a bit of difference that you need to keep in mind when it comes to temperature. Some species like very fast-flowing water. So one of the species that were um, very common once you could see like import things from Asia was where the padotenutes which um, they are very aggressive. So if you have two males in one aquarium, they are gonna essentially kill each other. And they are a species that lives in very fast flowing water. So you need to have very clean, uh, immaculate uh, water condition. While if you have a pond species, they tolerate like um, more dirty water, as in like you don't need to do water changes. You don't need to have as big of the filtration system. So it's it's not, they are not hard animals to keep, but you, if there is one thing that I would advise anybody that wants to keep any species of news or for the matter, any animals, you need to read a lot on the requirements. You don't want, you need to really make sure that you know exactly what type of environment you need to give them because it can vary quite drastically. Like here, the, from what my knowledge, there always been like one of the, um, very hard to breed because they are again like the the aggression levels between animals is quite high like i say like to not keep two males together but even a male and a female they could actually uh, attack each other and they're quite interesting because they have uh, parental care so the female what they do is they actually lay all their eggs underneath like um in their height and then they protect the eggs so they are very interesting but it's one of those species that, because it was so cheap to import them from Asia, nobody cared to bred them in captivity until it was too late. And suddenly, there are very few of them left around Europe because uh, they are not, from at least like what I knew so far, they are not easy to breed. So there are not many people that do. I have a friend that has been trying for quite a while now, and he keeps seeing them like. Um, um, the meetings, but 
so far no eggs so crossing fingers i can uh, i can see some eggs soon yeah i think that one of the reasons that people didn't get involved with captive breeding a lot of these species because they were just so cheap i mean you could go to a pet store and you could buy a, a, pretty much any species of newt for i mean this is going back a while maybe 25 30 years but you could you could get anything for like maybe five bucks 10 bucks you'd buy them like three or four at a time and they were so cheap that it really didn't behoove anyone to even start thinking about captive breeding them it's, uh, it's the same here like i can remember seeing them in the shops and never really caring about them and i kind of like regretted like in hindsight like if you knew this was coming so like i would have definitely getting some of the chinese fire bellies or the japanese ones but I guess, like, at the time, like, you would never expect, like, an animal to suddenly disappear from the pet shops. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing phenomenon. I mean, I've seen that happen with, with many species, but obviously within recent years it's been more caudates. Um, I mean, what sort of diet are you using for, for, for your newts? I mean, are they... Did, does each species have like a specific diet? Are they more opportunistic? I mean, what, what would you like? What's your feeding regimen like? So, feeding for newts is essentially does not really change across all the species. I think that's the one thing they all have in common. So, they so for a part for animals that are feeding in water, usually uh, branch shrimps, bloodworms. Uh, I guess in, from your side, you would have black bones, which we cannot find in Europe, unfortunately. Or um, uh, Daphnia, like shrimp, cuts, um, earthworms. So essentially, all these animals are all accepted. And for example, like for my aquatic species, like bloodworms and sometimes branch shrimps, and when I can, some small earthworms are their staple diet. Well, when you go to the terrestrial experience, it is essentially the same, but obviously you do not have the aquatic species, but you have earthworms, uh, crickets, uh, uh, isopods, you have, uh, you can give them roaches and, uh, um, what's that name? Uh, snail, no, sorry, not snail, slugs are, uh, snugs are surprising in like a favorite of fire salamanders, for example. So you, you're going to have some species that have some favorites, but essentially they eat anything that moves that they can fit to their mouth. The only um, the only live food that I've never managed to have one many animals eat has been uh, mealworms. For some reason, I think because they are too hard, they just, they bite it, but they never try to uh, chew it down. I've seen that with certain other species too. When it comes to mealworms, they'll just they'll kind of gobble them up and then they spit them almost right out immediately. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just uh, the the texture that might be too hard, might not recognize it as something that they'd want to eat. Do, do you have an opinion on some of the prepared diets? I mean, here we have some some pellet. Uh, you know, different companies they come out with these like pellet based diets. Do, do you have an opinion on those? The so the. The issue that I've found with those is that it's very hard to get a newt to actually eat them. So it's one of those type of food that if you're lucky, your animals are going to recognize it. But all of mine, they may sniff it, but the lack of 
movement or shape. It just does not make them want to eat them. So I think it's something that you kind of have to train your animals to recognize. From a nutritional standpoint, they are actually they are not bad. Um, they probably are more, in a way, are more balanced of some of the live food you can get. Because, for example, if you get crickets, but they've had very poor diet and they're probably they're not gut loaded. At the end of the day, they are not um, the most nutritional valid. As some of the live food, like waxworms, is very high in fat and nothing else. Uh, while usually these pellets, because they are formulated a bit more nutritionally balanced, but my issues with them is always mean that the animals don't recognize it as food. So if you have animals that eat them, I would say to have them as part of a diet, and but not the only food. You want to give them earthworms from time to time. You want to give them shrimps if they are in water. You want to give them variety. But it's a bit like human. At the end of the day, you cannot eat the same meal every day of your life. You want something different in order to get all the different vitamins and um, minerals that you need. And actually, one thing that probably I should also mention that if you have, especially for uh, terrestrial salamanders, it's always important to um, dust your animals with calcium and D3, just because they also need all those calcium for their bones. So it's one of those things like you cannot just do one food, like just rely on pellets or just rely on frozen blood ones. You need to give them a variety, otherwise, they're not going to be as healthy as they could be. Yeah, you actually just kind of answered my... I was going to ask you next if you did any kind of supplementation. One thing I am curious about, though, is for some of the smaller aquatic feeders like Daphnia, how do you go about getting that for your animals? I mean, are these things that you culture at home, or can you buy these at a local shop? Do you harvest them from a while? Like how, how would you go about getting these? Um, most of the time, I've harvested them from the wild, so it's it's one of those things that I always want to try to purchase, but every time I failed at doing it. So or the, every time I had to use Daphne, they were always either from the wild or I just put them into the pet shop. So you can buy the, you can buy them like a live, uh, sort of like a little plastic bag with Daphne in it, which is quite expensive though, uh, but mostly from the wild. I try to culture them in... Uh, in a bucket outside my garden, but obviously the when the population finally exploded was when I did not have any any larvae to feed, so I could not really use them. Um, another uh, one good feeder that I would advise anybody that can to keep is white worms, because I found them to be very easy to cultivate uh, to breed. So you just need like a little. Even like a takeaway container with some uh, earth in it, and feed them like bread or breadcrumbs, and then you always have like a very small size worm that you can uh, very easily give to larvae and smaller, small newts. So definitely something if you can to pick up a culture of them, and it's gonna go a long way. How long would it take a culture of white worms to get established if you started out with like a cedar culture? Um, not too long. Um, it's been so long since the last time I actually had to start a new culture, but essentially it's, 
it takes a few weeks. Like the what you want to do is normally go, if especially if your exposure is very small, just go like with a small container so that uh, there is not too much uh, land for the worms to just disappear, and then keep feeding it. And the more it grows, to transfer it in a bigger, bigger container. And once you have a culture in a takeaway, in a sort of like a takeaway container, you can always. Once you start to see that the culture is becoming too populated to just split half of it in a new culture, and by doing that, you can always keep three or four. I think at the moment I have three or four cultures, which I only feed rarely because I do not need any live foods. But if, uh, for example, I want to raise any larvae, I make sure that by the time the eggs are laid, I I already have a culture that starts to feed more so that I can increase the production worms uh, in the prospect of the larvae finally be able to eat. Yeah, I've heard about them. I, you know, periodically, I'll, I'm a big proponent of offering a variety of prey items because just like you said, I think that to get as close enough to a wild diet as you can, you're going to have to order, uh, excuse me, offer a variety of prey. Certain species like uh, species that are microphages like dart frogs are a little bit more difficult because you're really limited to, uh, you know, different species of fruit fly, small, uh, like things like bean beetles. Um, what's another feeder? Uh, so obviously springtails, isopods, et cetera, but you really don't have that. You can't run that gambit. And I looked into alternative feed, uh, alternative uh, feeders and I did run across white worms, but uh, I don't know, for some reason, like for me, I've heard of people using them, but they never really caught on at least as far as I've seen, I mean, again, I'm not, you know, deep in the, uh, into the salamander world, but I mean, would you recommend them for other species that were like non-aquatic? Cause I've heard about people using them for dart frogs. Um, I'm surprised for the dart frogs because I would just think that the, they would struggle to get them out of the, out of the substrate. But what worms are usually, I usually a lot in, um, uh, from, uh, from fish keepers. So if you want a culture of white worms, I think like the, your best bet is always going to be the fish forums. But I would essentially advise it to any any animals that, any larvae, uh, because once they go in water, they wiggle a lot and they live in the water for ages. So they're not going to really spoil your water until they get all eaten. But what I've always done is I always introduce them to all my terrariums. So they are in there. They are essentially doing the job an earthworm would normally do, making sure to clean up any residue food and any dead insect. For example, like if you have a uh, feeder insect that die into the terrarium, the white worms are going to take care of it. And so I would always introduce them anywhere, even like if it's uh, like uh, what the rest of the species. And they are in a more naturalistic setup. Having the white worms in there is an advantage, both as a cleaning crew, but also for the newts that are gonna eat them. It just the feeding the larvae in water is, uh, I think, like the my main use, apart from using them as custodians for for my terrariums. That's pretty wild, using them as a cleanup crew. I never would have even... I mean, again, I don't know much about them, but I, n- I never would have even thought of something like that. But, yeah, I have I have heard that about fish keepers, that they're really popular with fish keepers. But, 
Um, I see what you mean about, you know, not probably not being a good idea for dart frogs because they're going to kind of disappear into the substrate. But, I mean, I'm sure there's probably someone out there who has used them. But um, now what I, I always kind of ask this. Well, you know, well, uh, before I get to that, what, what is there a species that you would recommend to a beginner? Like if someone had an interest in newts and they wanted to get out uh, to become involved with a species that was, uh, let's just say, reasonably simple to keep. Is there a species that you would recommend? Yeah, so there are a few species that are recommendable for beginners. And the thing is that the main characteristic that they share is they are very tolerant uh, to mistakes. So it's the type of species that if you do a mistake, you're not going to lose all your animals suddenly. So they're a bit tougher, which one would be the absolute, which is a very common like uh, beginner suggestion because they're quite big, they have interesting personalities, they live in, they're easy to keep in aquarium and easy to train to feed on pellets. So definitely like that's one of the, always the most popular suggestions uh, and probably one of the easier uh, to find in the US. So I'm not entirely sure how common they are, but um, Spanish sharp rib news, so the Priorodaris wolf is another usually species uh, suggested for beginners. It's very big. Again, like they, I heard like some keepers refer to them as little tanks because it looks like nothing can really kill them. So they're very uh, resistant. They're very big. So, and they breed very uh, readily if they want to. So it's, again, it's another species that's very uh, recommended for beginners. The Chinese fire-belly newts also used to be one of the more uh, recommended species for big beginners, even though at the, it's not as much anymore. But I think it's uh, the only reason is because since the imports have stopped, has become quite rare to find. You would need to find someone to bring them captivity, so it's not as readily available as Axolot or at least in Europe, the Pterodelus uh, wort. Those species are actually very common in the hobby here. Uh, axolotls especially. In fact, axolotls are probably the most commonly kept amphibian, I would say, outside of certain species like, um, uh, well, I mean, here we call them Pac-Man frogs, uh, some of the, you know, some of those in that group, um, and probably White's tree frogs. Although I think they call them uh, Australian green tree frogs in Europe. I think that's the name they go by, but... Axolotls are extremely common, especially the Spanish rib newts. I've seen those quite a bit at expos as well. So they're, they, well, axolotls don't have, we don't have the same restrictions on axolotls as we do with other, uh, with other species because uh, they are used as a model organism in different laboratories and whatnot. So I think that that might affect their trade. I'm not 100% sure. I know that in certain states they are prohibited. Uh, I'm in New York, and the last time I checked, they're prohibited in New Jersey, and I think California. Why, I have no idea, but they are. So those are definitely a species that you can find pretty regularly. I mean, what, is there a, like, what would be, say, like the most difficult species or something like someone who wanted to come up through the hobby and look towards a certain species as their goal? Is there a species that would fit that description that would have very, very specific husbandry requirements or... Uh, you would need a lot of experience before you got involved with it? Um, it's a bit of a hard one to answer. Um, 
the I think that the only restriction really that you find is how widely distributed is a species. So the thing, for example, um, let's say that from my side in Europe, uh, most of the platelodontidae that you have in US, either they never made it to Europe or they were never bred. So for example, for me, a goal would be to actually have one of the one of those species because they are so rare and nobody's really breeding them that for me that would be a goal because it's a species that is not widely distributed in the hobby so that's why it's a goal for me because I want to breed them but uh, in the US if you are um, if you can find those species very commonly like in your backyard uh, I doubt someone would see them as a goal but they may see as a goal like some other species that come from either Europe or Asia that are very hard to find. Requirement-wise, um, the thing is with muted salamanders is that at the end of the day, if you if you know exactly what they need, they are not too hard. But at the same time, you just need to know exactly your um, their husbandry. There is not like a species that is inherently harder than the others. It's just a species that you don't know how to keep the right way, essentially. Well, that makes sense. I mean, those That's definitely good points. I see what you mean, though, about getting to know the requirements of each species. Um, one, one thing I always like to ask people, and I'm a very big fan of sustainability I, I hate to use buzzwords like that sustainability but it's one of those words that kind of gets people's attention and by that i mean not over exploiting a species to the point where it becomes no longer viable meaning like i personally do not want to be responsible for the extermination of a species due to demand i mean to me that's just smart that's just to me that's just common sense actually when it comes to conservation i mean what are some of the attitudes towards conservation in terms of how it affects the hobby in the UK and on the continent? I mean, do you have like a certain pervasive attitude that that's going on there? Um, so the so all the amphibians and reptiles in Europe they are all protected. I think um, you cannot. I feel like it's actually the reason why there's always been such a good stress about big species in captivity is the fact that you cannot uh, legally uh, pick up any animals from the wild. So you cannot get your fire salamanders, you cannot really touch any of them. So I think that has contributed the idea that you should not touch your reptiles and amphibians. So if you want to have those animals, you need to find someone that has the legal permits to keep and breed them in captivity. And there is quite a good effort like in trying to protect amphibians. Like fortunately amphibians is one of those categories where they are very susceptible to disappear because of um, pollution and other human activity. But at the same time they're not most I would say like most of the population does not really care about them or even know about them but luckily there are like so Tokyo from the UK there are several groups that are 
focusing their efforts in preserving um, wet areas and the amphibians uh, population that uh, we have in the UK. So I think it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like you have lots of good uh, good organizations and good like try to protect them. At the same time, you also have the other side of most people don't really care about this type of animals. So they would either try to activate, um, they would try, they pretty much ignore any of the safeguards that have been put in place to protect them. And I'm sure it's gonna, it's gonna be the same as in the US. Like at the end of the day, we love this type of animals. So we know, we know them, we know the species, we know how important they are. But if you take the average person, they don't really, they may not frogs and toads, but it's, it's not their main priority. So they are not really as bothered about their protection as other, all of us. I do see that attitude here. There is, um, uh, there's a lot of different attitudes, <clears throat> especially towards the, the pet trade. And, one of the things that I think people underestimate is the effect that habitat loss has. And when you want to sell someone on preserving some habitat, you unfortunately, you have to have put a face on it. And unfortunately, we have some very beautiful, I mean, they're all beautiful, but we have some very, very, you know, starkly colored salamanders here in the United States. And we have some that aren't. So trying to sell someone on a small brown salamander that they've never heard of is a tough it's a tough sell and you're right there's a lot of people that don't care but people who are in the hobby many I mean have a tremendous command of husbandry needs natural history etc and and how to maintain these animals in a captive environment which obviously is not the same as being able to maintain them successfully in the wild those are obviously two different things However, it's one of those things that people don't really know anything about. I mean, for, for, for example, let's just take, um, you know, uh, by where I live, there was a, a big tract of wood that was owned by the county. And the county sold that off about maybe two and a half years ago. And now there's condos going up, really expensive condos. Now, this wiped out an entire area of woodland, which was probably to the tune of... Uh, I want to say maybe 150 to 200 acres. I, I don't, we, we still use the imperial system here, so I don't know what that uh, equates to in the metric system. But there's so much biomass out there that would be wiped out that no one's ever going to even see. Because a lot of these species of salamanders, you're not going to see them all the time. They're very, very good at hiding among leaf litter and things like that. A lot of them breed in ephemeral wetlands, which you might only see for a couple of weeks during one part of the year. And they're very easy to just kind of become a footnote. Whereas some of the other species, I mean, take the red-eyed tree frog. The red-eyed tree frog is the poster child for Amazon conservation in part, I mean, I believe because it's a colorful species. They're probably one of the most, if not the most photographed species of amphibian out there. Everyone knows what they are. Everyone knows what they look like. And everyone knows sort of what they stand for in terms of conservation. But when it comes to salamanders, you're absolutely right. It's it's a difficult sell, and I don't think that a lot of people are really aware of how many of them are, I mean, especially in the United States. We have one of, one of, if not the highest density and diversity of salamander species in the world, but nobody knows. And they're not easy. They're not an easy sell the way certain other species are. So I definitely understand that. And it's it's. I mean, 
I guess when you reach out to someone who's on another part of the globe, you always want to maybe think that, well, maybe they're doing it better than we are, but it seems to be like we're both in, kind of in the same, you know, in the same boat here. Yeah, I think it's similar. Like, um, I think uh, an example I can give you is like in the, of the three species of newt present in the UK, the great crested newt is the one that is the most protected. So every time there is like new construction going on, they need to ensure that there are no populations around. And if there are, there is, they need to to start some activity to try to link the damage to that population. The downside of it is, so the upside is obviously uh, that allows this level of protection and protects the um, news and allows the population to increase. The downside of it is that lots of people are kind of annoyed at the fact that you would stop uh, develop, development projects like the one that you just mentioned because of some news around. So it's one of those things where Luckily, there are some good laws in place, but I think, like, overall, the attitude was the same thing to change. But on the red-eye tree frog, like, unfortunately, it's one of the things that people only really care about the very species. Um, Down, for example, from, from lots of conservation projects, they advertise the species that is going to attract the most uh, interest from the public. And the funds that that species raise are then distributed to species that, like the small brown salamander, that nobody would have cared about otherwise. So I think it's important we find both, like try to make people understand those species are beautiful, and at the same time use the more colorful one just to have gaining the funds to then protect all the other species as well in the environment. Yeah, all good points, definitely. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, I totally understand what you mean. I mean, you're going to have people that are going to try I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to think about it, but I mean, you're going to have someone who's going to want to put up housing or, you know, build some sort of development and whatnot. And it's like, well, you can't do it. Why? Well, because of this one brown salamander, people are going to get aggravated, you know, but unfortunately it's one of those situations where you have to have some sort of compromise. I mean, you can't just you can't give preferential treatment to one species because it's more visually appealing. You know, and I think that that's the hard thing that people have a, you know, people have a hard time reconciling that. So, um, I mean, we're kind of winding down towards the end though, but I mean, is there anything that you wanted to kind of address before we wrap up? I mean, we've talked about conservation. We've talked about species. We've talked about diets and captive husbandry and whatnot. I mean, is there any, anything else that you wanted to uh, get into before we kind of break? Um, I think like the only thing that I just wanted to make sure it comes across is um, if you are, I mean, this it's not does not just count for Nitrosalamandris, um, which is an advice for uh, any other amphibian reptile, so really any pet. is like if you want to, if you're looking to get into this hobby, you're looking like to gain your first pet and uh, keep them. Read and read, read a lot, because there are so many, so much information out there, and I feel like anybody they want to take care of an animal before getting the animal needs to understand the care that that animal takes, because it's always so it's very sad when you see people that they 
they found the news and they want to skip it, but they do not know anything about the speed. So or the husbandry setup is completely wrong. And at the end of the day, it's not their mistakes because they did not know, but they're all mistakes that can be very easily solved by just inform yourself a lot of the requirements or the speed that you want to keep. But it's so easy to make mistakes, but if you inform yourself first, you pretty much cover 90% of the issues you're going to face in the future. So it's definitely worth the time. I agree. And it's interesting because as, as I've gotten older, I've actually become more and more intimidated about keeping species that I never would have been intimidated by in the past because you're absolutely right. There's a, there is a lot of information out there. You just have to look for it. And I, I see it more and more and more. Like I, I oversaw something on the, in, the the wonderful internet that we all love so much. Um, someone had acquired a salamander, a captive, a captive, uh, excuse me, not captive, a wild caught salamander, and then asked people how to take care of it. And obviously, my first thought was, well, you really shouldn't. Number one, you really shouldn't be removing a native species anyway. And number two was, why are you asking that now? You know what I mean? It, it seems totally counterintuitive to acquire a species and then backpedal and try to figure out the best way to take care of it. Meanwhile, you're obviously not necessarily providing that animal with the care it needs until you can kind of get a handle on it. So for, I mean, for me personally, there have been species that I have, I mean, I've kind of backed off on keeping new, new species in general, but there are species that I often think that I would like to keep, but then I think to myself, I don't know anything about this thing. I, I know so little that I wouldn't be able to, do, to give it the proper care unless I was able to do a tremendous amount of research. And you're obviously, obvious, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, your, your website is a, a wonderful place. It has a lot of information, a lot of quality information. So, I mean, anybody out there, salamanderland.com, check it out because I, again, I'm, I'm by no means a salamander person. And I learned a lot off of the website, and I think that it has a lot of information that's also accessible to a beginner, but also to someone who is, uh, say, more advanced in uh, any advanced hobby that you would say. I mean, I don't like to signal out the amphibian. Uh, I don't like to single out the amphibian hobby, but uh, anyone who has, I guess, more of a um, more of a, an understanding of captive husbandry methods uh, that need to be tailored to a specific species would find these would find your information very very accessible. Thank you. And um, one thing that I wanted to just mention is that the website is still a bit in construction. So apologies if you expect to see everything, but there is, uh, we are trying to build care sheets for animals. But I think the, for each one of the care sheets we did put up on the website, they are all species that um, the author of the article has does keep and breed and also raise the young. So it's, um, we make sure that before actually writing the article, we are confident in the information we give. So it's, um, very, some of the other cases are very detailed, but we are, we are trying to do all that we can to make sure that it's not just uh, information, like copy and paste information from around the web, it's all our personal all of our personal information of how we successfully keep, breed, and uh, raise the youngs of uh, the species that we wrote about. So hopefully it's going to come in handy for some of you guys out there. 
I did notice that there's a lot of citations and it's, it's not like something that you would just click and paste. I, I, that was, that was the first thing that I noticed was just how the, the, the quality, the, when I said the quality of the information, I mean, there were citations, there were references. It was, it's, it's, it, it's quality stuff. It's not like, um, you know, just like Googling salamander care and getting like a three, you know, a three sentence care sheet. It's, it's, it is good information. So, all right. Well, listen, Josh, it's been very enlightening. I, I've learned a lot, you know, and, um, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing everything that you can. Um, you know, everyone out there, I know the audio is not too great in this episode, but I think that, um, we learned a lot here today and I'm definitely thankful that you came on the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. All right. Well, listen, everyone, it's been fun. And again, I'm going to try and feature some more diverse content like we got into tonight. And uh, I have a couple of a couple of surprises coming up for the next couple of weeks. So until then, everyone out there, take care of yourselves, you know, and stay tuned for more. Till next time.